was in our time, but all time was then young. The brave Caledonia, the chief of her line, from some of your northern deities sprung. Who knows nothing of brave Caledonia's divine? From Tweed to the Arcades was her the name To hunt or to pasture or do what she would A heavenly relation there fixed her reign And pledged their godheads to wanted good A lambkin in peace, but a lion in the pride of our kindred, the heroine grew. Her grandsire, old Odin, triumphantly swore, Where shall provoke you, the encounter shall rule. With tillage or pasture, a time she would sport, To feed her fair flocks by her green rustling corn. But she flee the woods where her favourite is a heart, a darling amusement, the hounds and the heart. Long quiet she reigned till thither words to ears, a flight of bold eagles from Madria strand, repeated successive for many long years. They darkened air and they plundered the land. The pounces were murder and horror their cry. They ravaged and ruined the world beside. She took to her hills and her arrows let fly. The daring invaders, they fled or they died. The camel on savage disturbed her repose With tumult and disquiet, rebellion and strife Provoked beyond bearing, at last she arose And robbed him at once of his hopes and his life The Anglian lion the terror of France, of frowling and sanguine, the tweets of a flood, but taught by the bright Caledonian lands, he learned to feed in his own native wood. The fell happy raven took wing from the north. The scourge of the sea and the dread of the shore The wild Scandinavian bore a shoot forth To wanton and carnage and wallow and gore O'er countries and kingdoms the fury prevailed No arts could appease them, no arms could repel But brave Caledonia in vain as large welcome witness and long cup Thus bold and 
independent and conquered and free Our bright course of glory forever shall run For brave Caledonia and motto must be I'll prove it from you clear as clear as the sun Rectangle, triangle, the figure we'll choose The brightest chance and all time is the base But brave Caledonia's the hypotenuse Then there goes she'll match them and match them always Well, praise Yahweh that Christogenia is more or less blessed with some of the best technology in, in Christian identity. I I hope so. so um, talk shoe crapped out on us tonight, and um, here we are. Thank you for following us over here. It, it's we don't have half the crowd that we had on talk shoe, but my. Um, my server tells me that we have 20 people listening, so some people are listening that aren't in the chat, and, and that is fine, of course. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia.org. It, it would normally be Christagenia on TalkShoe. TalkShoe would not accept any calls, and, and it, 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 it told me I was online, and the software did not indicate that we were online, and, and Matt was online with me. And um, he, he had no way to, to, to start the call and, and no way to recognize callers. So, so that was kind of crazy. It, it's, um, I don't know what talk she was doing. They've had a lot of technical problems lately. Carolyn's been, been struggling to even get into a program on TalkShoe, and, and it's not her fault. She's doing the same thing I'm doing, and I've had problems in the yeah, you know, on and off and over the last couple of months, and, and um, tonight was just horrible, but that's okay. Praise Yahweh that we have alternatives. And, and I would come here all the time, except that I hate to give up the public face that, that, um, that TalkShoe affords and the opportunity to attract people that perhaps haven't heard our message before. And... Um, well, well, it's my philosophy that everybody should hear our message and that most people will hate us for it. And um, I know that Christian, un- unlike several other so-called Christian identity um, pastors and teachers, I understand that Christian identity is never going to be popular. I only strive to be effective. And to me, being effective means getting in everybody's face and giving them all the opportunity to hear, understanding that they're not going to like my message, but that's just tough. Tonight I'm going to present the first part of of the prophecy of Joel. I had planned on finishing Joel tonight, and in one night, it's only three chapters, but I I was writing my notes today, and I I had ten pages of notes, and I had... um, I, I wasn't even done with Joel chapter 2, so so we're going to hear that much. 
and, and I'll I'll do um, part two of my presentation of Joel next week. This will be a two-part series, and, and that's fine. I, I have a few digressions tonight in in the first chapters of Joel, but but I think that they're necessary digressions. And and next week uh, I'm going to have um, to fill out the program with the second part of Joel. I'm going to have even more digressions. And, and I think that they will also be necessary and, and filled with things that need to be said. Praise Yahweh. It is Friday, March 13th. That's why we're having problems. Nah, that's a joke, right? I'm really the least superstitious person in the world. It's Friday, March 13th, 2012. This is the Prophecy of Joel, Part 1. The following is from the Thomas Nelson Publishers King James Study Bible, copyright 1983, by Thomas Nelson Incorporated. While I would usually not read anything like this from mainstream commentaries, they do get some things right, and, and this is surprising to me, and, and I read this here for its testimony of the nature of Joel's prophecy well, which is actually pretty fair and decent, considering it was originally, this commentary was originally a product of Liberty University in, in Virginia, right? And I quote, Joel is a highly emotional prophecy, rich in imagery and vivid descriptions. In it, two unique events not to be forgotten are compared. These two events are to be committed and, and this is incredible to me that they would say this. These two events are to be committed to the descendants of the people. And, and, you know, I have to make a comment on that. Because, oddly, they deny that very thing of the new covenant, which explicitly says it's for the descendants of those same people. And, and the people, the dispensationalists at Liberty University would deny that. That they can be, you know, modern dispensationalists can prove to be hypocrites over and over again by their own words. That there's no doubt. Okay, I'm going to continue with their commentary. Historical setting. Joel was one of the earliest prophets of Judah. The specific place from which Joel wrote is not known. Since he was a resident of Judah and Jerusalem, he likely wrote his prophecy from there. His frequent calls to blow a trumpet in Zion, to con consecrate a fast, to proclaim a solemn assembly, and to gather the people together to come before the Lord, lend credence to the view that the prophecy was issued verbally from the court, from the temple court, verbally being my comment. Two events are compared in the course of Joel's prophecy. The locust plague upon Judah in the days of the prophet and the far greater coming day of the Lord. The later is set forth in the figure of the former. That's important because that's a good, good observation. But they don't get it. Joel is the special prophet of the day of the Lord. He mentions it five times. In, in 115, 2.1, 2.11, 2.31, and 3.14, Joel, and, and I should say Joel so that people don't think I'm, I'm quoting Job. Joel has been called the prophet of Pentecost because of his most famous and well-known passage, which is Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. Quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, more than half of the book is built around a description of the locust plague. Joel's prophecy is the grandest description in all literature of such a plague. Joel is also a great prophecy of repentance. 
on both a personal and national scale, for which see Joel 114, 213, and 215, and, and they do good with most of this commentary, actually, that the purpose of Joel's prophecy is to turn the nation back to God in preparation for the great day of the Lord, the theme of his prophecy, I would add, that that day is today as much as it was in Joel's time. Authorship. The author of the prophecy is identified only as Joel, the son of Pethuel. His name combines the names Yahweh and El. This is their words. And means Yahweh is God. And and to me, I have a side note. It's amazing that Liberty University makes this admission and still goes on to ignore Yahweh in exchange for the word Lord in its worship. Even though the the Old Testament scriptures contain the name Yahweh five or six thousand times. The author is one of 14 men in the Old Testament who share this name. Joel was a contemporary of both Hosea and Amos. I have a dispute with that. I accepted that, and and I'll, I'll explain that soon. Though he ministered to the southern kingdom while they ministered to the northern kingdom. Joel's frequent references throughout the prophecy to Judah and Jerusalem indicate that he was not a priest, though he was an inhabitant of Jerusalem and was a prophet of the southern kingdom. That That's the end of my quote. I don't see how they arrived at that last conclusion that Joel was not a priest simply because he, he made frequent references to to, to um, Judah and Jerusalem, that doesn't add up to me. But that's the conclusion they came to for some strange reason. Now, I cited that commentary because the commentators at Liberty University did well on the dual nature of Joel's prophecy, that it was written for events in Joel's own time, and that it was also written for events to occur, which were to occur in some distant time, In the time of the final judgment, which is known throughout the prophecies as the coming great day of Yahweh. They did well also with the meaning of Joel's name, for it certainly means in Hebrew that Yahweh is God. Too bad they do not continue to so readily recognize that fact in their daily intercourse. However, they also err in some respects. First, they refuse to see that the locust plague, or they're unable to see, perhaps, that the locust plague is an allegory. It is not necessarily to be taken literally. While there is no assertion with me that locust plagues do not happen for they certainly do, no locust plague is recorded as having happened upon Israel in the kingdom period during which Joel had written to the degree that Joel describes it. We simply don't have an an actual history of that. There is a mention in Amos, however, that infers that there were times when the children of Israel suffered plagues from insects. And we see in Amos 4.9 that Yahweh says, I have smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palm worm devoured them. Yet have you not returned to me. However, in Joel, 
the text itself, as we shall see, describes a locust plague and then goes on to lament an invasion by a nation, a nation of people, into the land where it can clearly be seen that the locust plague is merely an allegory for invading people and has little to do with insects. Concerning the dating of Joel, in this respect, I made an error in the notes to my Hosea commentary, accepting mainstream assumptions such as those that we have seen here without checking deeply enough for myself concerning the dating. Joel, as we shall see upon examining the text, and I have to say that we won't see it until we get to the third chapter, Joel was most likely not one of the earliest prophets of Judah, as Liberty University and many mainstream commentators assert. Examining only the first two chapters of Joel, it may appear that the commentators are correct about the dating. And, and I fell for it myself when, when, I, when I investigated. Um, yeah, you know, when I did Hosea, I, I, I have a lot of notes on the prophets. But when I did my Hosea presentation, I ran down the chronology of the prophets, and I believed that I was right in every one of them when I did it. And, and now I believe that I was right in every one of them except Joel. And, and that's the way it is, right? Uh, and, and that's because examining only the first two chapters of Joel, it may appear that the commentators are correct about the dating. However, examining the third chapter of Joel, Joel must be dated to a much later period than is generally assumed. And I'll prove that when we get to the third chapter next week. In that chapter, it is clear from the context of his prophecy that he wrote after the Assyrian deportations of Israel, which included most of Judah, but before the Babylonian deportations of the people of Jerusalem and the remnant of Judah and Benjamin and Levi. There are clear indications of this in Joel chapter 3, which shall be illustrated as we proceed to examine the text of that chapter in the second part of this presentation. I'm sorry we won't get to it tonight. And with that, we'll start with Joel verse 1, chapter 1. The word of Yahweh that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We're not told much about Joel, and his father's name is unknown elsewhere in Scripture. However, the Septuagint, his father's name is Bathuel. As it was said in the introduction, Joel was a common name, and there were 14 men, according to Liberty University, mentioned in the Bible who had that name. The more accurate count is actually 13, since an examination reveals that the man bearing that name in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, in the genealogies of Levi, that man is the same as the man in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, mentioned in a historical context. Joel was also the name of the firstborn son of Samuel. And wherever else the name appears, it usually also happens to be accompanied by the name of its bearer's father, because it's usually listed in the genealogies. So that it is safe to, to assert that mention of Joel the prophet is found only here in this book, and where he is later cited by Peter in Acts chapter 2. Joel chapter 1, verse 2. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? 
The admonishment indicates that the things which Joel is about to describe are heretofore unheard of in Israel. Verse 3. Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm has left, the locust has eaten. And that which the locust has left, the canker worm has eaten. And that which the canker worm has left, the caterpillar has eaten. Because of the alternate meanings of some of the words here, some commentaries claim that this may refer to four stages in the life of the same insect. Yet, Joel 2.25 indicates that it is four different insects which are being referred to. That the locusts are bear in Hebrew, and the caterpillar, chasil in Hebrew, are certainly different insects as evident elsewhere since they are distinguished both in 1 Kings 8.37 and in Psalm 78.46. The Septuagint has verse 4 like this. The leavings of the caterpillar, the locust, has eaten. The leavings of the locust has the palmer worm eaten. And the leavings of the palmer worm has the canker worm eaten. More importantly, however, those commentaries which imagine the alternatives to the meanings in this verse ignore the consequent subsequent verses, which demonstrate that this really does not refer to insects at all. Rather, it refers to people. Verse 5, and we'll be talking about verse 4 quite a bit over both of these programs. Verse 5, Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and how? All ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the cheek teeth of a great lion. The palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, the caterpillar, these are not insects. Rather, they are allegories for people or for nations of people. That is why the children of Israel are depicted in verse 5 as drunkards. And in verse 6 we see the phrase, A nation has come up upon my land, referring to Israel and the land of the people of God. If the people of Israel had been alert, had kept God's law, had not been drunkards, this would never have happened. Verse 7, speaking of this as it has already happened, will prove this interpretation, where Yahweh says, He has laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree, removed the bark from the fig tree. He has made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Here we see that as a swarm of locusts, can lay waste a vineyard or a tree, the nation which comes upon the land, strong and without number, can lay waste the people of God, who are the branches of his vine. John 15, 5, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Hosea chapter 10 verse 1 described the results of the sin of Israel, where Hosea said, Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. The prophet Nahum, using similar language and describing that which the Assyrians did to Israel, says at Nahum chapter 2, verse 2, For Yahweh has turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. Same language we see here in Joel. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 9. Using similar language, prophecies the Babylonian desolation of Judah. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, They shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer. Into the web, into the baskets. The people are referred to as drunkards here in verse 5, because if it were not for their licentiousness, the sinful lives they had been leading, the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar would not have consumed the land. The Canaanite, the Hittite, the Assyrian, and by the time that Joel wrote this prophecy, they have already ravaged most of ancient Israel, which is established in chapter 3, in the second verse and elsewhere. Now the Babylonians would come in and ravage the remainder of Israel. Verse 8. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. As a people... We almost never seek our God until calamity strikes us. Every time. It works every time. And then we begin to pray for his intervention. Whereby then it is usually far too late. When times are good, most of us completely forget about God. And so it was then as it is now. Verse 9. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of Yahweh. The priests, Yahweh's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourns. For the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languishes. The Septuagint says the oil becomes scarce. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers. For the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished, the vine is dried up. This is talking about the children of Israel. And the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate tree, the, the palm also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men, the sons of Adam. Husbandmen and vine dressers are metaphors for the priests and the rulers of the nation. There is a parallel to all this in Isaiah chapter 56, and I will quote verses 8 through 12. Yahweh God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet will I gather others to him, meaning other Israelites, besides those that are gathered unto him. All ye beasts of the field, 
the locust, the pommel worm, the caterpillar, the canker worm. All ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yeah, all ye beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yeah, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all took to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. Come ye say, come ye, they say, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. Yesterday it was the Hittite, the Canaanite, the Assyrian, the Babylonian. Today it's the Negro the Puerto Rican, the Hispanic, whatever, the Mexican, the Arab, the Jew, the Chink. There's no difference. Isaiah is looking far into the future after Yahweh gathers the outcasts of Israel. And he had certainly done so for he gathered them to Europe and then to America. So he's already gathered the outcasts of Israel. Yet, as we even saw the commentators admit, Joel's prophecy has an application for that far future time in those days at the great and terrible day of Yahweh, as it says at the end of chapter 2. In Isaiah, we see that the shepherds, the political leaders and priests of the nation, living lives full of abundance, had no care for the people and allowed a nation to slip into the decadence which helped to cause its demise. The watchmen should be guarding the flock and they are more concerned with filling their bellies. That's the picture that Isaiah draws. And he's talking about this time because he's talking long after the outcasts of Israel are gathered. The outcasts of Israel were gathered long ago and they were gathered in Christ. Now, we again have the palmer worm, the canker worm, the caterpillar and the locust, and again they are devouring our land. No doubt. Verse 13. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. How, ye ministers of the altar, come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of Yahweh your God, and cry unto Yahweh. Alas for the day, for the day of Yahweh is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. This is not a warning of punishment for sin. Rather, it is long past that point, and the punishment is coming regardless. This is a call to recognition and to penitence, that one may be granted mercy in order to withstand and survive the punishment when it does come, and it's guaranteed already to come. That the day of the Lord, the, the, that the day of Yahweh is at hand was a warning for the destruction to come in Joel's day as well 
as a warning that such destruction would come again in the great and future day of Yahweh's judgment, that day which is referred to more concretely at the end of this prophecy, and we'll see that in chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 4 talks about the same judgment which Joel does here. And at 4.14, Jeremiah warns, O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? Both men have been saying these things in Jerusalem around the same time, and the people still didn't listen. Verse 16. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yeah, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pasture. Yeah, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. O Yahweh, to thee will I cry, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And the flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. While the phrase beasts of the field is often used as a pejorative term for non-Adamic peoples, it is not always so, and it certainly isn't a biological term as some clowns assert. Rather, as we see it used here, it means wild animals. The Septuagint most often translated the term, the Hebrew word, as fair, and that would be spelled in English T-H-A-R, for which see Strong's number 2339 in the Greek New Testament Dictionary, as opposed to katanus, K-T-A-N-O-S, Strong's number 2934, a katanus is a domesticated animal, such as a beast of burden, a donkey, an ox, and a horse. Here in this passage, however, and among other minor differences, the Septuagint has specific words for cattle and sheep in verse 18, and in verse 20, where the King James Version reads, beasts of the field, the Septuagint has cattle of the field, where the word katanus was used to translate the Hebrew. Although we certainly should see the non-Adamic peoples of the earth as wild animals, that's the way we should see them. And Jude explains that. Jude says they are animals not having the spirit. At verse 19, as verse 19 of his epistle may be translated. And Peter, at 2 Peter 2.12 says, of those spots in our Feast of Charity who eat with us unworthily because they're not the children of Israel, Peter says that they are born as irrational, natural animals into destruction and corruption, in which blaspheming, they are ignorant in their corruption, they also shall perish. Yet that does not infer that the non-Adamic peoples are meant every time we see the phrase beasts of the field in scripture. Here, Yahweh through the prophet merely indicates that all of the animals of the land would suffer, thereby illustrating the degree of destruction which was to result with the coming invasion. Jeremiah 4.18-29 
foreseeing the same destruction, Jeremiah describes it thus, Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reaches unto thine heart. My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace, because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled, and my curtains in a moment. How long shall I see the standard, and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people is foolish, they have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. This is the extent to which the land is destroyed by the invading armies, by the enemies. And it makes a poetic reference which harkens back to Genesis. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of Yahweh and his fierce anger. For thus... Has Yahweh said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black. Because I have spoken it, I have purposed it, and will not repent, neither neither will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up upon the rockets, Upon the rocks, every city shall be forsaken, and not a man dwell therein. The destruction foretold by Jeremiah was also to be in the hands of an invading army, and he makes very poetic language of the total destruction of the land, much like Joel uses the plague of caterpillars and locusts to describe the same thing. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of Yahweh comes, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spreads upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there has not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations." The Chaldeans are not mentioned here by name, as they are in Jeremiah or in Ezekiel, where the destruction to come upon Jerusalem is also prophesied. And that makes Joel a little more difficult to date, since the entire context of the book must be studied. However, when these invasions are... And, and we'll get to that when we cover Joel chapter 3 next week, to the, to the actual timing and, and the evidence of it. However, when, when these invasions are spoken of, in, in, you know, speaking of the Old Testament, they are always oversimplified anyway, and usually for the purpose of getting the general message across. The Assyrians invaded Israel and Judah in the 8th century BC, and they took most of the people away to be resettled elsewhere. But the Assyrians were not alone. Rather, 
the Assyrians held the hegemony over all the surrounding nations. The Assyrians held the hegemony over the Persians, over the Medes, over the Babylonians, over the Hittites, over certain other nations. And all of these nations must have contributed to forming the Assyrian armies, as was the custom of the time, which is evident in both the ancient histories, such as Herodotus, and the surviving inscriptions, that all the components of the empire, all the subject peoples, pitched in with armies to go out and conquer other people. That's the way Rome worked. That's the way Persia worked. That's the way they all worked. The book of Nazar of Babylon consolidated his own empire from the parts which had dissolved with the fall of Assyria. It didn't take him long. Assyria fell circa 612 BC, I believe, and the book of Nazar of Babylon rose to the throne in 606 BC and had his whole empire assembled by the time he invaded Palestine and, and Judah in 585 BC. The Babylonian imperial armies must have also been formed in the same manner, and therefore, although Babylon itself is east of Jerusalem and somewhat more southerly in latitude, its armies were described as the northern army in verse 20 of this chapter. Since most of the empire was situated to the north, and since the entry into Palestine was to the north, generally, to avoid the desert, there were also some Greek mercenaries fighting for the Babylonians, as is evidenced in some of the Greek lyric poets, it's mentioned in Alcahius, for example. And those mercenaries are known to have participated in the Babylonian campaigns in Palestine. So we had Greek mercenaries working for the Babylonians to help destroy Jerusalem. Such has been the case with every other world empire known from history, that their armies have been built from the components of many other tribes by either compulsion or by bribery, which being a mercenary is receiving a bribe to go kill somebody else. Verse 3, A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yeah, and nothing shall escape them. As a swarm of locusts, the invading army will devour everything in its path, and therefore that is the reason for which we see the analogy that Joel uses of the destruction of ancient Israel, that it has been devoured by one swarm after another. Verse 4. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame, a fire that devours the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array, before the face, before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness, they shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march every one on his ways." And they shall not break their ranks, neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path, and when they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city, and they shall run upon the wall, 
They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The Septuagint has verse 9 like this. They shall seize upon the city and run upon the walls and go up upon the houses and enter in through the windows as thieves. As it is made evident by comparing Acts chapter 9 verse 24 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 33, the walls of ancient cities often had attached buildings. And therefore, frequently, the windows faced outside of the city, right through the city walls, because of the buildings were attached to the walls. That's how Paul was able to escape the Judeans in Damascus, by being let out through a window, through the wall, and down outside of the city. In 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23, there's the account of the reign of Hosiah, who ruled in Judah for approximately 30 years towards the end of the 7th century B.C., which was nearly 100 years after the Assyrians had laid waste most of Israel and Judah. From that account of, of the reforms of Josiah, it is clear that many people of Judah were inhabiting large parts of the land outside of Jerusalem, who either escaped capture by the Assyrians or who had, in the course of the ensuing decades, spread themselves back out from Jerusalem into the countryside. A city cannot survive without holding the towns and villages of the countryside upon which it would rely for its source of food. Yet here the focus of the prophecy seems to be on Jerusalem alone which is the city that must be meant where the wall and the city are referred to by the prophet. He's really only speaking of Jerusalem, and that's the focus of the prophecy concerning the destruction of Judah to come, because that's where most of Judah is inhabiting. Verse 10, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw they're shining. In verse 19 in chapter 1 we read, For the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. A military invasion and a drought condition would make it easy for an invading army to destroy with fire the fields and forests of the countryside as an offensive tactic. They would burn the farming fields, whatever they didn't pillage for food. They would burn the forest. They would burn the, 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 the groves of trees so that they could more easily defeat the enemy and break his spirit, knowing that he has no more source of food. The smoke would certainly cause the conditions which were envisioned here, that, this, that the sun and the moon should darken and the stars should withdraw their shining. Yet it is also evident that the sun, moon, and stars can represent the governments and God and, and the people of God on earth. As they do in Revelation in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, where it says, The sun became black as a sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth. That's talking about the government of the Romans and the people of God in the empire.
Here, verse chapter, here in verse 10, where it is speaking of the fall of Jerusalem, it may very well describe both the conditions of the countryside, literally, and the final fall of the people of Judah, allegorically. Verse 11. And Yahweh shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executes his word. For the day of Yahweh is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith Yahweh, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto Yahweh your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repents him and, and repent him of the evil. In other words, beg for his mercy so that he doesn't perform the evil which is to come upon you for your sin. Even in their destruction, Yahweh shall have mercy upon his people if they repent. The call for them to rend their hearts and not their garments is a call to sincere repentance and not a mere pretense of repentance. A successful defense against the invaders shall not determine one's survival. For Yahweh has already indicated that the invaders are unstoppable and that the destruction of the kingdom is certain. Rather, only a repentant heart and a willful turn in obedience to God shall determine one's survival. Verse 14. Who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto Yahweh your God. Who knows if he will be able to survive the onslaught. The mention of the offerings is allegorical. 1 Samuel 15.22 And Samuel said, has, has, Yahweh is, has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken, to listen to the law, is better than the fat of rams. Hosea 6.6, 6, which Christ quoted several times in the, in the gospel, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of man more than burnt offerings. I'm sorry, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Paul tells us in Colossians 3.10 that putting away all sin and accepting Christ, we have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. The children of Israel as a nation are the bride of Yahweh their God. 
And they will have mercy and survive if they marry themselves to him, which requires submission and obedience to him. This is just as significant for us today. For those of the ancient Israelite stock who are in Christ, it's just as significant for us as it was for ancient Judah. Verse 17. Let the priests, the ministers of Yahweh, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Yahweh, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? The scoffers at the time of the end were said to say the same thing, and today they say it. Then will, then will Yahweh be jealous for his land and pity his people. The phrase between the porch and the altar refers to the inner court of the temple. Yahweh shall spare his people for his own sake, because they are his heritage. The people themselves as we see all around us today, are not worthy of mercy. But they shall receive mercy on account of his word and on account of his promises. Luke chapter 1, verses 72 through 75, declare the purpose of redemption for Israel. Where he says, and these are the words of Zacharias, which he recorded, to bring about mercy with our fathers, and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. Therefore, if his people are not going to serve him, he shall continue to chastise his people until they shall serve him. Eventually, his will shall indeed prevail. And anyone who doubts that is a Christ denier. If Yahweh isn't going to throw any Israelites into the lake of fire, we had better not imagine it. Joel 2.19 Yeah, Yahweh will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith. And I will make no more a reproach of you among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea, and his hinder part toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. The comparison to the two seas and, and to certain passages in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, I will reserve for next week when we discuss parts of this prophecy again, and also discuss chapter 3 of Joel. For now, I will discuss the repentance aspect of this prophecy. If we repent 
and choose to obey Yahweh our God, he will remove the enemies from our land, and he will bless us with bounty and with increase. We are not going to remove our reproach of our own accord. We are not going to remove our reproach outside of repentance and return to obedience to our God. We are not going to be successful in doing that on our own ever. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. That formula cannot be changed by the will of man. We must put away all the idols, the movies, all of the other things that the Jews peddle us that we worship, the televisions. We must put away the fornication, which includes race mixing. We must put away the sodomy or the acceptance of sodomy. The usury, the pharmacia, the use of pharmaceuticals. And only then can we start to repent of our sins. And then he will heal, heal our land. And he will remove the enemies from our land. We have no victory unless we have repentance. Verse 23. Be glad, you children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will come to cause, and I'm sorry, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the later rain in the first month. James said in his epistle to James 5 7, which shall be cited again later in this presentation. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the prince. Behold, the farmer awaits the precious fruit of the earth, having patience for it, until he should, until he should receive the early and the late. While I interpret James to, referring, to be referring to the early and the later fruits, those fruits do not come without the early and the later rains. And many interpret James to be referring to the rains themselves. That there was an early rain and a later rain in the agricultural season of ancient Israel is evident in several places in Scripture, including Jeremiah 5.24, and I quote, Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear Yahweh our God that gives rain, both the former and the later, in its season. He reserves to us the appointed weeks of the harvest. In his paper, which is on emmaheiser.christagenia.org, in his paper, Early Rain versus Later Rain, Clifton Emmaheiser wrote this about these two rains, comparing them to the history of the congregation in Christ. And I quote from Clifton's paper, here the early and later rain represent, firstly, the rain of seed time at planting, and secondly, the rain of ripening before the harvest. 
The first fell in Judea about the beginning of our November after the seed was sown. The second toward the end of our April, as the years began filling out in preparation for the full harvest, as their crops developed during the winter and early spring. It is obvious that this passage typifies the beginning of the Ecclesia period and extends until the time of Yahshua's second advent, with a long dry season between the two rains. Most good farmers are aware that a moderate dry spell after the seed has been planted can be beneficial, causing the plants to develop a vigorous root system so that when the rains finally come, the crop will produce an abundant yield. This may be a strange way to look back on the history of the Ecclesia, the the congregation of God on earth, but this is what James and the prophets before him were alluding to. The reader needs to differentiate between the early and the later rain, as each are different in their respective nature. In other words, we are not instructed to reenact the events at the day of Pentecost as a pattern of our worship, while there were miraculous phenomena at Pentecost as recorded in Acts, such as the speaking in tongues. It was only in earnest, it was a down payment of the Spirit. At the day of Pentecost, there were gathered many good fig Judahites from many lands speaking diverse languages, and a miracle was provided in both the speaking and the hearing for that event to be a success. So we saw an early rain in the descending of the Spirit at Pentecost, and the marvelous things which those first apostles of Christ were able to do. And now, we expect a later reign of the Spirit at the return of Christ, which is our full redemption. Paul and the other apostles calling that first reign, calling that first dispensation of the Spirit, a down payment as a token of our coming redemption. Isaiah also likened the word of God as rain from heaven. At Isaiah 55.10 through verse 13, and I quote, For the rain, for as the rain comes down and snow from heaven and returns not there, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to Yahweh for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And of course, we look forward to the day when there were no more thorns and when there are no more briars, because we sure as hell are besieged with thorns and briars today. Joel 2, verse 24. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. 
and I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm. Now this is important. My great army, which I sent among you. And we have to observe that. Here we see that Yahweh himself sent the palmer worm, the canker worm, the locust, and the caterpillar among us in order to devour us. But that does not mean that we can blame Yahweh our God for our troubles. For we invited these plagues upon ourselves when we turned away from him. It is very clear in the blessings of obedience and in the curses of disobedience, which are spelled out for us both in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, what the consequences of our sin would be. Among these curses, at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 32 through 34, Yahweh warned where he said, and I quote, Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people. You wonder why there's so many white girls running around with Negroes. It's our disobedience. And thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long. And there shall be no might in thine hand. The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up. And thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed always. So we have the Mexican. So that thou shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. Now, we see these very things happening here in our lands today. And so far, we are powerless to stop it. And it does indeed anger us. We have these lessons in the following scriptures. And I will quote from Judges chapters 3, 6, and 10. All of these scriptures we have still failed to learn from. Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and forgot Yahweh their God, and served Baalim and the groves. They turned to paganism. They turned to the pagan fertility rituals of Baal, which caused them to race mix. Today, we see men in strip bars. We see women in strip bars. They're serving Baalim. They're doing the same thing that these ancient Israelites did. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Chusan Rishtam, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Chushan Rishtam, Rishatam, eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And Yahweh delivered Chersan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Chushan Rishathaim. So we see that the children of evil did, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and Yahweh turned them over to a foreign king to rule over them. We're in that very predicament today, are we not? 
Most of most of the white world is in that very predicament today. Judges chapter 6, 1 through 4. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh turned them over into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. They went and hid from them. So running off into the wilderness and hiding in a, in, in a cave or a den in the mountains is nothing new. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle in their tents and they came as grasshoppers for multitude for both they and their camels were without number and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh because of the Midianites, that Yahweh sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith Yahweh the God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drove them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am Yahweh your God, fear not the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And there came a messenger of Yahweh, and sat under an oak, which was an Oprah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizarite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of Yahweh, that sounds like the Bolsheviks taking all the food off of, off of the Russians, right? And the angel of Yahweh appeared unto him and said unto him, Yahweh is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if Yahweh be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us, and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And Yahweh looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? And we all know the story of Gideon and how he delivered Israel from the Midianites. But the fact is, that the children of Israel fell under the yoke of the Midianites because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their harlotry, because of their fornication, their race mixing, because of their sodomy. Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 18. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of Yahweh, and served Baalim and Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is... Ashtaroth means the gods of Ishtar, the goddesses of Ishtar, that they were idols that the children of Israel served. Ishtar was a fertility goddess. Ishtar is the Greek Astarte. Ishtar is the source of the name for the book of Esther, the book which shouldn't be in the Bible. 
Ishtar is the source of the name for the pagan fertility feast of Easter. It's all the same word. Astart, Esther, Ishtar, Easter. Ashtaroth. The idols of Ishtar. They serve Balim and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook Yahweh and served him not. Today we serve the gods of the Jews. Today we sit in their theaters and fill our heads with their garbage. And again the anger of Yahweh is hot against us. And the anger of Yahweh was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. Today we go to Jewish banks and we take out loans at usury, and Yahweh has us sold into the hands of the Jews. He has us sold into having an alien, a half-Negro alien for a president. That's the punishment we get. Today we're sitting in the hands of the Philistines. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years. And all the children of Israel that were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was sore distressed. And the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against thee. We get in trouble. We recognize our sin. We call on God. We never recognize our sin and call on God until we get in trouble. It's a pattern throughout history. We still haven't learned. And Yahweh said unto the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? and from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites, and and, and the Mayanites, did oppress you when you cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. In the time of your tribulation. And the children of Israel said unto Yahweh, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seems good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served Yahweh. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Then the children of Ammon were gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled themselves together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people and princes of Gilead said to one another, What man is he that will begin to fight against the children of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Judges chapter 11 relates how Jephthah the Gileadite was then raised up by Yahweh to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. The pattern should be clear. Every time the children of Israel fell into a state of idolatry, Yahweh uses or used the surrounding nations to oppress and to chastise them for their iniquity. They only repented when they could no longer stand the chastisement. 
So it is in the days of Joel, that Judah had fallen into a state of decadence, and they were therefore destroyed by the Chaldeans, by the Babylonians. Judah did this in spite of the fact that she was warned by many prophets and had witnessed what happened to Israel and to much of her own nation at the hand of the Assyrians just a few generations before time. Yahweh had sent the Assyrians to chastise Judah, and her repentance was only short-lived. So Yahweh sent the Chaldeans to chastise Judah again, which is what we see happening here in Joel. Yet once again, they are promised deliverance if they turn to obedience. Today we see the sin of our nation and the destruction which has been wrought as a result of that sin. We must accept the lesson offered by James in his epistle in James chapter 5, verses 7-11, through 11, where he says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the prince. Behold, the farmer awaits the precious fruit of the earth, having patience for it, until he should receive the early and the late. Today we expect the late, the later rain, the later fruits the later blessings of the Spirit. You also have patience. Establish your hearts, because the coming of the Prince is approached. Do not bemoan, brethren, against one another, in order that you would not be judged. Behold, the judge stands at the door. Take as an example, brethren, of ill-suffering and of patience, those prophets who have spoken in the name of the Prince. Behold, we are blessed, who are enduring. You have heard of the endurance of Job. And you will know the accomplishment of the prince, meaning Christ, that the prince is very affectionate and compassionate. We need the endurance of Job today, now more than ever. We saw the mainstream commentators announce how Joel's prophecy was applicable to his own day and also to the end of days, to the time leading up to the great day of Yahweh, the judgment of our God. However, the mainstream commentators failed to grasp. They failed to grasp the true meaning of the locust plague. Matthew Henry came close. Matthew Henry's commentary, where he said, Through a devastation by these insects, though a devastation by these insects is primarily intended here, yet it is expressed in such language as is very applicable to this to the destruction of the country by a foreign enemy invading it. With certainty, the mainstream commentators would never identify these insects as people today. They'd be ashamed to, even if they saw it. They would argue and debate with you if you tried to show it to them, in spite of the fact that they admitted to the applicability of the prophecy in such a manner. They said that Joel was applicable to both Joel's time and to the future great and coming day of Yahweh. Today, white nations everywhere are overrun with the palmer worm, the canker worm, the locust, and the caterpillar. In the second part of this presentation on the prophecy of Joel, we shall compare the other biblical prophecies which confirm this interpretation. And that will be next week. We shall discuss what it means for Christendom today and what the final result of the prophecy dictates for the children of God. Thank you for listening.
I will be on TalkShoe, I think, tomorrow night and, and next week. But if TalkShoe is not functioning correctly, I will resort to coming back here to Christagenia. And, and praise Yahweh that we have this. And, and um, I, I would rather be on TalkShoe, but we could do programs here. It, it's... It, it's. I know that we're not going to get the the um, the same number of people, but Christagenia ha, has um, podcast archives which get lots of downloads. According to my um, server, twenty six people listen to this program tonight. They're not all in the chat. You can also listen to this program simply by clicking the the um, top player on the upper left-hand side of any of the other Christagenia pages. If, if you go to the home page, you'll see three players. Christagenia.org has three streaming radio stations. Two of them are listed publicly, and, and they are Christagenia.org and, and Christagenos.org, which is also my backup website. And one of them is not listed publicly, and that's what you're listening to now. It's at Christagenia.net. I am thinking about making it public. Before I do so, I have to consider moving it to one of my other servers. Yes, I have the server, and moving it is somewhat of a task. It it can be... um, well, well, it's a few hours' work anyway. And once I do that, I will list. I, I will make this public also that these stations are listed on AOL Shoutcast. You can look them up. You could find them by either looking for Christagenia or Christagenos. The other two stations, you, you know, I've always been streaming. Well, well, for the last three months, I've been streaming all my programs through Christagenos. Through through Christagenia.net through the station there. I'm sorry, it's it, it's Christagenos.net. Through this live station that you're listening to now, I've been doing this for months and simulcasting on TalkShoe, and um, that that's actually worked quite well. Now that if TalkShoe functions tomorrow night, I'll be back on TalkShoe. If TalkShoe does not function tomorrow night, I will be back here, and of course, we'll be a few minutes late probably. And I don't even know what I'm doing for a program tomorrow night because um, I haven't made my mind up yet. Uh, I, I have a few options. Thank you for listening tonight. And uh, where the next program will be is is um, contingent on how TalkShoe is operating. It, it's definitely broke right now. Praise Yahweh and good night. And, and I pray that I see you all here tomorrow. And, and I'll be here next Friday. I'll be either here or at TalkShoe next Friday with, with the Prophecy of Joel Part 2. Praise Yahweh. Good night.